Good morning, everyone. Thanks for being here on a, our first snowy morning of the year. Yeah, isn't, it, isn't it beautiful? Um, thanks for digging out. And it feels a little bit like a snow day. Um, often when it snows out, we have a little lower attendance. But if you're at home uh, watching via Facebook, uh, welcome. I pray God's blessing on you. Would rather have you here with us, but God bless you at home. Um, we are in a series, of, and by the way, if you're a guest new to us, my name is Paul Buckley, I'm the lead pastor here, and we're in a series for Advent, um, using the Advent season to kind of slow down and prepare our, oh, that's not working, there we go, to slow down and prepare our hearts just for the reason for the season. So we're doing a series looking at Jesus the man, examining the humanity of Christ. We've looked at different aspects of this from Scripture. And this morning I want to look at Jesus and His suffering. His suffering as a, as a man. Um, scripture presents Jesus as a man, as fully human, uh, for many reasons. And when we understand Him as a man, there is tremendous benefit for us. I trust you've seen some of that. When we miss this point, I think we miss on the full benefit that the Lord would have for our lives and knowing Him. And there's many ways that this affects us. So in this particular area of Jesus and His human suffering, I believe God has much to teach us, much comfort and strength to give to us. Uh, so we're going so to dig into this topic. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 2. Uh, so you can turn your Bibles there. We'll have it projected as well. We'll just camp out in one section this week. I know last week was kind of a, a, a relay race, running here and there to different Scriptures to look at the topic at times. Uh, that's what we'll, we need to do. But this one we can just camp out in Hebrews chapter 2. Uh, and we're going to talk about suffering. We don't like to talk about suffering, do we? We don't like to, to face it. We don't like to deal with it. It's uncomfortable. It, it feels awkward uh, when you're sitting with someone who's going through suffering, doesn't it? We always you know, struggle, I think, with that, knowing what to say. What's appropriate? What, what can I say? Because I'm not really suffering like they are. How do I help out? And, and we want to avoid some of the errors too, right? So sometimes it's, we just don't want to say the things that aren't going to be helpful. We don't want to reinforce the things that aren't true. There's, there's all sorts of ideas out there about suffering and how to interpret it, what to do. Um, there's... There's a lot of bad theology and just worn out platitudes that just are not helpful. Um, every cloud has a silver lining. You know, the sun will come out tomorrow. Well, that, that's just worn out and it doesn't necessarily help people where they're, when they're in the middle of their suffering. Um, some of the other ideas that are behind it, like, um, you know, you deserve better than this. Um, you just need to believe God for better things. Those sort of ideas, they're, they're not really helpful. Now, there's maybe some truth in all those statements, but they're not really what the Scripture would say at, at the heart. And so, we don't know often. And we struggle with this whole idea of suffering and what to say. We want to avoid being unhelpful. But the reality is, guys, that we all suffer. Uh, we may not like to talk about it, but it's an ever-present reality. We all suffer. Every person suffers sooner or later. Maybe you've had an amazing life where you really haven't suffered at all, but, but you will at some point. Um, we all will die physically eventually. And most ways that people die uh, are not very pleasant and easy. You don't, it's very rare that you lay your head on the pillow and you know, wake up to be in heaven with the Lord. Uh, usually there's a sickness, prolonged sickness. Sometimes it's decades of sickness. And, and sometimes it can be very difficult to die. Sorry, I don't mean to be morbid, but that's the reality. Uh, one way or the other, we all suffer. We all go through difficulty. We all go through, through loss and pain. Uh, and for some of us, uh, you've been in an extended season of suffering. It's not just been a little thing here or there, but it's been a season. In our church alone, as I kind of tallied things, uh, this year alone, we've had two heart attacks, cancer, chronic sickness, life-endangering surgeries, mental health issues, financial hardship, 
loss of loved ones, broken and even hostile relationships, wayward uh, friends and children, uh, and, and never mind kind of the normal things that we struggle with like doubt, discouragement, uh, the constant onslaught of temptation by the world, the flesh, and the devil, and common things in our culture and around us, and to some extent even in our midst, things like addictions, addictions to substances, to uh, sexual immorality, things like that. There are, there's all sorts of suffering going on this past year, and it's going on all the time. There, I've said it. I've kind of talked about the reality, the elephant in the room. Um, we don't like to talk about it, but guys, it's, it's, it's ever-present. We all deal with it. And the Scripture doesn't pull punches on this. The Scripture addresses this. Uh, it isn't the right way to kind of to avoid suffering and not talk about it or present some sort of you know, your, your best life now theology. Let's just kind of talk about you know, that suffering is just a state of your mind and faith and move on to you know, better things. That's not what the Scripture does. Uh, no matter how much the proponents of such theology would claim it, it speaks of that. We suffer. To be human is to suffer. And Jesus offers us real help in our human suffering. He is the answer. He is the answer ultimately to bring to somebody in suffering. And getting Jesus' humanity in His suffering makes all the difference to us individually and as a church in knowing what to say and knowing how to walk together in suffering. Because Jesus suffered as a man, we have all the help we need in suffering. Jesus knows suffering. So trust Him. That's what I want to talk about. That's what I believe Hebrews 2 and really the entirety of Scripture teaches us. So let's pray and we'll dig into this passage and trust the Lord to teach us and to change us. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for who You are. We thank You that, Lord, You want us to understand truths here and to be changed by You. Lord, You want to equip us to, to know how to suffer in You, to know how to walk with others as they suffer. You have the answer for us. Thank You, Lord. And You, you have the answer through Your Word by Your power, Holy Spirit. So come now and help us to understand and to learn and to apply. Help me to proclaim Your Word Change us and be glorified through it, we pray. Amen. So Hebrews chapter 2, I'll start in verse 10, and we'll go through verse 18. And uh, actually, Toby did not know that I was preaching from Hebrews chapter 2. And providentially, he had us read through Hebrews chapter 1, which is, of course, related to Hebrews chapter 2. Uh, so we're going to read, starting in, in verse 10, this section of Scripture. And it says, For it was fitting that He for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why He is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in Him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that He helps, but He helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore He had to be made like His brothers in every respect, so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because He Himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. God's Word from Hebrews chapter Chapter 2. Chapter 1 talks about Jesus and who He is and that Jesus is superior to the angels. That's what it is about. It presents Him as God Himself. And so we read through that. For the 
readers of this message, the listeners to this message, they uh, would have spent a lot of time in their culture speculating on angels and what angels mean and how they're connected to things and so forth. And so the, the writer of Hebrews wanted them to understand that Jesus is, ain't no angel. He's not like an angel. He's superior to an angel. He's God Himself. And God's not interested in angels in the same way you guys might be. So I want to get your attention on Jesus. That's kind of the flow of the argument. And now in this section, he's getting their attention onto Jesus and His humanity and His work of redemption as fully God and fully man. Not an angel, but fully God and fully man. And that's where this section of Scripture fits in. So I want to go through Hebrews chapter 2. I just want to look at some of the truths that are here. I want to emphasize the central truth that Jesus knows suffering, so we are to trust Him. So first, Jesus was perfected through human suffering, starting in verse 10. I actually considered just speaking on this one verse because it's so amazing, so rich. It says, For it was fitting that He for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, now the thing that I think strikes us first is that Jesus was made perfect through suffering. And so that should cause us to think, what could that mean? Because He's God in the flesh. Isn't God already perfect? Isn't God actually perfectly perfect? So what could it mean that Jesus was made perfect through suffering? Well, we'll get to that. We'll consider that. And I think we'll learn from that. But, but first, just to back up into what it says before it says that, it says here, for it was fitting that He for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect. So it was fitting. It's fitting that, that God would do this. That God who is, it describes who God is here in this passage. It says, uh, for whom and by whom all things exist. It's speaking of God there. And it's speaking that, that phrase that it, all things are from Him, all things are to Him. Have you heard that before in Scripture? God's described that way. Um, and, it, and when it describes God that way, it's speaking of the glory of God. It's saying basically God made all things. He is the originator of all things. All reality, all creation, all the physical and spiritual part of the universe, every idea, every truth, uh, and really uh, in His sovereignty, every moment throughout space and time, He has created, He has ordained, He's sovereign over it. From whom from whom are all things. From God are all things. He is the Sovereign One. He is the Creator of all things. He presides over all things. He's in control of all things. And ultimately, all things lead to Him, to His glory. So from His glory, He created all things. And all things ultimately lead to His glory. That's what that's talking about. Now, why is it saying that? This is, I thought, on suffering. Why is it talking about God and His glory from whom all things and to whom all things? Actually, it isn't just talking about God and His glory, right? If you look in verse 10, it says, "...in bringing many sons to glory." Interesting. So it's saying the God of glory from whom all things flow and to whom all things flow from His glory to His glory is bringing many sons to glory. Now, sons there, uh, in most languages, that's inclusive, means sons and daughters, so we take it that way. And bringing children, sons and daughters, to glory. Uh, he's at work here and he needs to do something with Jesus. But, but it's about glory, right? So he's the God of all glory making all things and making all things to lead to glory and he wants to bring sons and daughters to glory. He wants sons and daughters who bear the image of his glory and behold his glory. That's what it means when it says bringing many sons to glory. It has to do with creating a people who would bear His image, who would bear and reflect His glory. That's the original intent in mankind, that we are to bear His image, we're to reflect His glory, we're to propagate His glory, we're to enjoy His glory in that. So bringing many sons to glory means that bringing these sons and daughters to be transformed, to be bearers of His image and His glory, to behold His glory and enjoy it. So this is all about glory. Do you see that? But it's talking about suffering. Right? Because it's going to talk about Jesus being made perfect through suffering. What I want you to see, I'm not going to actually explain all that right now. We're going to go through it. But I want you to see that there's a connection between glory and suffering. And I think this is where we go wrong right here at the beginning. We look at suffering as something besides 
an issue, an item, a truth, or reality related to glory. And what Hebrews 2.10 is teaching us, and it's elsewhere, you can look in Romans 5, you can look everywhere, is that they're connected. The God of all glory creates out of His glory, wants to bring all things to His glory, wants to share His glory, wants to spread His glory, wants us to enjoy His glory. And He is intent on bringing many sons to glory. That's salvation. He wants you if you're a believer in Christ. If you're not, He still wants you to behold His glory, to bear His glory, to be transformed by His glory. He's intent on glory, but He does it through the means of suffering. He uses suffering to accomplish glory. There's a connection between the two. And understanding that is oh so important. If you don't understand that suffering's connected to glory, you're not going to understand suffering. And you're not going to fully understand glory. Now that may seem abstract. I hope to fill it out. But I just want you to see the connection there and understand and benefit from that connection. And I think when you get that, when we get that, we look at suffering a little differently, don't we? It's not somehow God's plan B. You know, We messed up in the garden so we had to kind of come up with some way to deal with the mess. But it's not about the mess. It's, it's just put that aside as quickly as you can for glory. No. It's been God's plan all along that through suffering to spread His glory, to bring us to experience His glory, to manifest His glory. It's connected. It's connected through Scripture. It's connected right here in front of us. So, it's fitting, given this truth, given God's plans, given the storyline of the Bible, given this connection between glory and suffering, because he's intent on glory, that he should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So there's, there's a work of suffering that has to be accomplished in the life of the Son. Sorry, I'm trying to fix my thing. Um, and so God has a plan to accomplish glory by perfecting his Son through suffering. He wants his Son to accomplish this plan of glory by suffering. And He has to be perfected through His suffering. Now how could that possibly be? He's God. He's perfectly perfect. He's God. God, there's the three in one. God the Son. He's perfectly perfect, but He's also fully human. And in His role as a human, as the God-man, there was learning for Him that needed to happen. He needed to become fully human. He needed to live a fully human life. He had to be fully ready to do the work of His life and His mission. So He had to experience humanity. He had to experience the full scope of humanity. He had to be fully human. He had to experience all that that being human means. And that, of course, means suffering. So in order for Christ to be fully human, He had to suffer. He had to go through human suffering. He had to experience the suffering that we have as humans. He had to experience the sort of suffering that you have known. He knows suffering. He had to be perfected through experiencing suffering throughout His life and then ultimately uh, peaking in His work on the cross. He had to be made a, a, a human who had engaged and experienced all these things so that He could help you in the work of bringing you to glory. He, in order to lead you in salvation, had to suffer. He learned through suffering. It's interesting just to consider that. Consider this provocative thought that God the Son, strictly speaking, is not able to save you. I said it. Let's sit. Now, the qualifier is strictly speaking. He had to become the God-man. So God the Son had to take on flesh and become Jesus, the God-man, fully God, fully human, to save you. He had to enter into humanity. And God's plan, now of course God's sovereign over this. This is His plan all along. He's not surprised. Oops, I forgot. I've made things now. I, I, I guess I've got to become a man. No, it didn't happen that way. In His sovereignty, He planned it this way all along. But He couldn't save you by remaining God. He had to become man. He had to enter into your experience. He had to so identify with humanity and with your life that He knows suffering 
and would bear your suffering and bear the worst sort of suffering possible and through that suffering and, and what He experienced through it to bring redemption to you. To bring life to you and yes, to bring glory to you. That you could be a bearer of His glory, an image bearer of His glory, and a beholder of His glory. Jesus had to go through what amounts to an extensive internship of humanity in order to be qualified to be your Savior. That's what it means when it says He, had to, he was made perfect through suffering. When I was in college, a senior in college, uh, and I was in my final year looking at graduation, I looked at a number of different jobs. I was a mechanical engineer by training as an undergrad. And one of the jobs I had uh, as a possibility was working at uh, General Dynamics Electric Boat in Groton. That's where they make submarines for the Navy. They, uh, General Dynamics actually makes most of the submarines for the Navy, and it was a really cool job. But what they were looking for was someone who would enter into an engineering uh, management intern program. And what they required for this candidate was that you would work all the different jobs in the boatyard. So you would actually be there with the welders, learn to weld, be part of the welding team. You would be there uh, with the electronics guys. You would be there with just every aspect. You would work in all these different jobs and, and you would learn what goes into building a submarine. And then with that background, you'd be ready to start being a candidate for management. That was the idea. Now I turned it down, um, partly because it involved going through all different shifts, working at all different times and putting a lot of hours on. And as I thought about uh, my responsibilities to being part of church and, and future family, I thought, well, that's going to conflict with that. So I turned it down. I turned down this internship, but it is good news for us that Jesus did not turn down His internship. That He came to live among us and be acquainted with our suffering. To be acquainted with human struggles. To identify with us in our suffering in every way. He didn't turn down His internship. He engaged in suffering throughout His life, climaxing in His suffering on the cross that He would embrace the fullness of humanity and fully identify with us and rescue us. He has rescue for us in our suffering. Jesus knows suffering. That's good news for us. Because there's all types of suffering we experience. One type of suffering is the suffering of loneliness. And I think it all... For all of us at points in our lives, we suffer through loneliness. Maybe you are suffering and dealing with loneliness right now. Maybe you've lost a spouse. Maybe through death. Maybe through divorce or neglect of that spouse. Maybe you don't have a spouse yet. And your friends are getting married and you are aware of your singleness. And there's loneliness there. Maybe your loneliness is even in the midst of relationships, but those relationships don't seem to provide enough to satisfy your loneliness. Jesus knows loneliness. He understands the feelings of isolation and aimlessness, even depression. He was alone. He was often alone. And in some ways throughout his whole life, he was always alone. For no one else really understood who he was. His own mother had her doubts. His brothers rejected him. His hometown kicked him out. His friends wavered in and out of support for him. And ultimately, he was all alone on the cross. For not only had his friends abandoned him at that point, but as He bore sin on the cross and became the object of God's holy justice, the One who had known fellowship with the Father, perfect fellowship, in some way we don't understand, though still remaining fully God, still fully part of the Trinity, the Father in His wrath treated Jesus differently. And so, He was alone on the cross. He knows loneliness. He was utterly alone. 
He understands your suffering in your loneliness. He knows what it feels like to be alone. He knows those different feelings you have, those, those feelings of confusion or isolation, aimlessness. He understands that. And He was alone that you might never be truly alone. He knows loneliness so that you wouldn't have to know true loneliness. That you could know peace with God through His blood. That you could have God in you and with you always. That you could have God as your closest friend and your best fan. That's what He provides for in His life, death, and resurrection for us. He was utterly alone so that you might never be alone. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He is with you. And He wants to use your loneliness now. He wants to use that suffering for glory. Well, how might that work? How might loneliness be used by God for glory? Well, there's probably a thousand ways, but one way is it presses you to realize you need something strong enough to strengthen you, to help you. It presses you in to finding your life in Him. God is so intent on helping you become what He wants you to become and all the blessings and joys of that. He is so intent on you being a bearer of His glory and one who beholds and enjoys His glory. He will even take loneliness, if that's what it takes, to drive you there. So your loneliness is not meant to be something that is something we just ignore and put off to the side. Oh, it's, an, it's just, let's not talk about it. It's uncomfortable. No, your loneliness is meant to point you to Jesus who knows loneliness and in Jesus to find that you are never truly alone. That there is somebody who is a friend at all times. There is someone who loves you with an everlasting love. There is a, f- a friend who is close to you. There is one who calls you son or daughter. Who loves you, the Father. Defines your life in that. And so He uses loneliness for glory. Jesus knows suffering. Let's trust Him. Moving on. Verses 11-14. through 14, He identifies with us in our human suffering. It says here, for He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's why He's not ashamed to call them brothers. Saying, I will tell of, oh good, we have it projected. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing uh, your praise. And again, I will put my trust in Him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given with me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself wisely partook of the same things. He identifies with us in our human suffering, in our humanity. The, for He who sanctifies... And those who are sanctified all have one source. The one who sanctifies is Jesus. Sanctify, to sanctify someone means to set it apart. To set it apart for a particular purpose. What are we set apart for? We're set apart for God. We're set apart for glory. So the one who sanctifies, speaking of Jesus, because He's the one through His life and death and resurrection sanctifies us, sets us apart for God. And those who are sanctified, that's us, all have one source. The Father in His sovereignty and our common humanity. So the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all share in the fatherhood of God under the Lord and our common humanity. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, it says at the end of verse 11. If you could keep that up, that'd be great. Uh, So he is a human. And he calls you, as his fellow humans, brothers and sisters. And the verses that are quoted in this section are from the Old Testament and they are verses that Jesus fulfills in his humanity. The first one is from David. David is speaking about worshiping God, being before God with his brothers and sisters. That's what it's speaking of. And Jesus fulfills this as one who lives before the Father and says, these are my brothers and sisters. I'm not ashamed of them. This is my church. These these are my people. The second quote is from Isaiah. So Isaiah expresses faith. I will put my trust in Him, speaking of God. And behold, I and the children God has given with me. So Isaiah is actually in the day presenting himself and his family to God. And the writer of Hebrews is saying Jesus fulfills this because Jesus as a man, as the God-man, says, Lord, I look to You and here are my brothers and sisters. Here's my family. This is God's attitude. This is Jesus' attitude towards us in His humanity. He shares our common humanity. He is a brother. Do you understand Jesus as your brother? As one who's not ashamed to call you his brother or sister? Do you understand him that way? That's what Hebrews 2 teaches us. This is who he is. This is how he sees us. He shares in our humanity. He's one of us. We talked about this the other week. He's not an outsider. He's one of us. 
shares in our humanity, calls us brother and sister. Can you picture Jesus going up to you? Say, today, you see Him out in the street somehow. Um, and He comes up to you and says, David, brother, great to see you. Or Hannah, sister, great to see you. That's what this passage is teaching. That's his attitude. He looks at us as brother and sister. He's not ashamed to, to call us as ones who look to the Lord together as his brothers and sisters. There's power in understanding that he identifies with us that way, that he shares in our humanity, that we have this common thing together, and he shares in our sufferings. He knows suffering, he knows what it is to be human, he knows what it is to deal with these things. He's part of the group. And there's power in identity in that sense. There's help for us in that. Nowadays, a very popular thing uh, is support groups. There's all types of support groups out there, and they all share uh, something that distinguishes them as a, as a common experience. So these groups are formed around common experiences, often suffering. And there's all sorts of groups out, out there. Actually, I, I looked, I think it was Wikipedia listed some of the groups, just to run through it really quick. Here are just some of the groups that are out there. Groups for addiction, AIDS, Alzheimer's, Alcoholics Anonymous, anxiety, Asperger's, bereavement, uh, personality disorder, breastfeeding, brain trauma, cancer, circadian rhythm disorders. I never knew about that. Uh, codependency, diabetes, debtors anonymous, domestic violence, eating disorders, uh, families of addicts and alcoholics, fibromyalgia, gamblers, grief, infertility, uh, in inflammatory bowel disease, irritable bowel syndrome, miscarriage, mood disorders, narcolepsy, Parkinson's disease, sex abuse survivors, sleep disorders, stroke, suicide prevention, and, and other things. Wow, that's just some of them. These groups are common, and why do people do this? They get together because they share that common suffering. And they know there's help in that. Well guys, we are meeting this morning as a support group. We share together in suffering. And church is really a support group for sufferers. It's other things as well. But that's what it is. It's a support group for sufferers. We come together as fellow sufferers. And we can share together this experience and we can help each other. Mostly we can help each other because the guy who leads the group has suffered the most and understands what it is to suffer and has provided real answers for us. His name is Jesus. Jesus leads this group and church really is a a group of fellow sufferers coming together with Jesus. It's so important, guys, to, to be a regular part of this support group. To come together on Sundays, to be part of a small group, and to do life together as we wrestle through suffering. Why? Again, suffering is intent on producing glory in and through us. But we need the support of one another with Jesus, the One who fully identifies with us. Thirdly, Jesus rescues us through human suffering. So He identifies with us in human suffering and in humanity. He rescues us through human suffering. So verse 14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook of the same things. Why? That through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who, fe uh, who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So He rescues us through Suffering. He enters into our humanity. He enters into our suffering not just to commiserate with us, but to rescue us. To redeem suffering. To rescue us through His own suffering. Now, it says here that the rescue is from the devil. So through His death, He might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. So the devil's real. The devil is part of our suffering. The devil is part of our temptation. And struggles. He's real. Evil is not just a principle. Evil also comes in a personality called the devil. Called Satan and all his minions. And, and we know from the storyline that, that his MO is basically to tempt us. To get us to doubt God. To get us to sin. And once sin has its way, there's death. And that's what he's done with all of humanity, and that's kind of on a micro scale what goes on in every temptation. He wants you to, to doubt and to sin and to experience death, separation from God, broken relationship with God. We know that we've inherited that 
broken relationship with God from our forefathers, from Adam and Eve, and their original sin has affected all of humanity. And we are born, in a sense, dead in sin. And we will keep on living that way. And we will live in fear of death because we know things are not right. Things are broken. And death looms before us as, as a foreboding thing. And we live even in slavery, worrying about death, trying to preserve our lives. That's basically what motivates people in life. They're trying to preserve their lives somehow, preserve the lives of, of their loved ones. And you can end, enter into slavery in that. You're, you're looking to somehow find life. And so the enemy enters in this way and enslaves people who live in the fear of death. Jesus enters into our life, into our humanity, and, and enters in and identifies with us in His death. He, he has a human death. He's fully God, but He's fully human. And through entering into the suffering unto death, He provides deliverance from the fear of death and the devil. He bore our sins when He died on the tree, on the cross. He bore our sins. He died the death we deserve. If you put your faith in Him, He dies for you. That's the bottom line. And it's that simple. It's faith. What is faith? Faith is believing and embracing. Biblical faith is believing something to be true. I believe it's true and I embrace it for me. So it's entrusting yourself to Jesus. Trusting Him. That's what biblical faith is. It's very simple. Hearing this truth about Jesus, believing that He died for us on the cross, that He bore our sins, He died the death, the consequences of our sin in Himself on the cross. He bore the holy justice of God poured out for our sin and rebellion against God. When we trust in Him, we are so connected with Him that, his, that He basically he dies for us. And we die with Him. And He is raised on the third day alive forevermore. And through faith and our connection to Him, now we are alive in Him. So we die and live again in Jesus. A Christian is already dead. But is forever alive. That's how it works. That's how He rescues us from the fear of death. Because we've died. Death is is separation from God being punished or disciplined or the consequences brought to bear in our lives. It's really punishment for our sin. Have an eternity of being cut off from Him. There's nothing worse than being cut off from the Lord. And Jesus comes and He dies our death for us. He dies in our place so that through faith in Him we might be rescued from the fear of death. No longer fearing sin's consequences in that way, but now in Him alive forevermore. The Christian is already dead and yet alive forevermore. Jesus entered into our suffering, the suffering of death, that He might free us from death to live truly in Him. So Satan no longer is to have a grip on us. We are to be free in this. I hope that makes sense. Maybe an illustration. In uh, the HBO series Band of Brothers, it's a book. It's based on a, a real stories. For the most part, represents them accurately. It's a true story about uh, World War II heroics uh, by Easy Company of the 101st Airborne. And there's a scene in the movie, it's, it's in the book from what I remember as well, where there's this private in a foxhole. It's at Carenton. Um, so just after they had stormed the beaches, they take starting to take towns. There's a German counteroffensive, and they're in foxholes. There's this private in a foxhole, Private Blythe. And he's terrified. He won't get out of the foxhole. Everyone else is engaging in battle. He's crouching down in the corner, afraid. And along comes <clears throat> Lieutenant Spears. One of the, uh, I think at that point, other company's officers. And he says to Blythe, he says a number of things, but he says, Blythe, the only hope you have is to accept the fact that you're already dead. And the sooner you accept that, the sooner you'll be able to function as a soldier is supposed to function. Blythe is there in the foxhole trying to preserve his life, so he's terrified. And Spears brings the truth like, just count yourself dead already, and you'll be free to do what a soldier is supposed to do. Guys, it's the same thing for us as Christians. We're already dead. Jesus died our death. He entered into our humanity, died the death we deserve. We're already dead. But we're alive now in Him forevermore. By the way, we're going to celebrate that in baptism uh, January 6th. If you haven't been baptized, please talk to me. Baptism is a symbol and a seal of that reality. Uh, that we're, we're already dead. 
And so we don't need to worry about preserving our lives. We've already died and we're alive forevermore in the Lord. And if you get that, it changes life. You know what else it changes? How you view suffering. Because the temptation in suffering is, is to try to preserve our lives rather than die and find our life in Jesus. And maybe one of the reasons your suffering has been so difficult is that you're trying so hard to live. Now don't get me wrong. There's a lot of compassion. The Lord has compassion for you and your suffering. I don't mean to be Lieutenant Spears to you, but sometimes those words can help. There's tremendous compassion from the Lord and from us as a church. But maybe your, your struggles are because you're not counting yourself already dead. You're trying to live. And you know what? We can't really help someone in their suffering unless they face this truth. If they're trying to live, every moment of that suffering is going to be difficult for them because they're resisting what the suffering is forcing them into, dying to self. They're trying to preserve things. They're trying to hold on to things. They're trying to have life. And we can't really help them. Now we can come along and provide some comfort and friendship for sure. But the ultimate answer is, to, is for them to understand you've died with Jesus already and now you're alive in Jesus and for Jesus. And now this suffering gets reframed in, in, instead of being something that interferes in my life, it's part of my new life. Dying and now living in Jesus and He's working in me eternal life. He's working in me glory. He's trying to get at character issues. He's trying to make me like Jesus. And He's trying to use me like Jesus as well because the comfort we receive is meant for others. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 uh, says that he despaired of life itself in his suffering. Why? So that he would learn to put his hope in the one who raises the dead. So he frames his suffering in terms of the lesson that God's teaching him to find his life in the risen one. Though I'm going through tremendous pain and loss, whatever it was, we don't know. And I despair of life itself. God is using this to teach me to live in him and his resurrection life, not in myself. That's what this is talking about, and I believe an accurate application of it. If we can get this, if we understand this, then we're free in our suffering. We're free to live. We're free to serve. We're free to be fully transformed in it. How did it get to be 11.15? Final point, quickly. For Jesus rescues us completely through suffering. Of course, this is is related. Verses 16-18, through in some ways, our summation of everything that's come before in the chapter. Jesus comes to rescue us, not, uh, not angels, but the offspring of Abraham, the offspring being humans, but humans who live by faith, who look to the Lord. He comes for our rescue. He's made like His brothers in every respect so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. So a high priest, what's a high priest's job? High priest's job is to represent man to God. To, to be the representative of people to God. And to intercede on the behalf of the people. The high priest would, would bring an offering every year a sacrifice to the Lord and blood shed by an animal to represent the people to God because in our sinfulness and our brokenness, we've turned away from the Creator. And I think every culture has this uneasy sense that something's a little bit wrong. When we look at creation, we recognize there's a God. We look at ourselves, we recognize I'm a mess. There's something wrong. And so there's this implicit impulse in humanity to somehow get things right with God. And so you'll see A lot of religions and spiritual attitudes have basically a sacrificial system somehow to try to make an offering to make up for what we've done. That's implicit, I believe, in humanity. It's explicit in Scripture. The high priest's role in God's commands was to represent people to God, to bring that blood offering, to make atonement, to appease God for sin. Now, don't get God wrong on this. God's not some just crotchety old man who's peeved at you. He's holy. He's good. And good people respond to evil by hating it. We get that. And God is perfectly good. Infinitely good. And holy. And glorious. And so when He sees evil, He has to respond to it with hatred. He's not happy when terrible things happen. And ultimately, all the terrible things we do, mostly to one another, are ultimately against God because He's a Creator. 
And so there's a problem with God. And it's not on his part. It's on our part. And the high priest's job was to offer blood as a way to appease God for our sins. Now, the blood of animals will never satisfy, can never satisfy. God Himself became a man. He became a man and He offered Himself for our sins. He shed His own blood. He entered into our own lives. He became a merciful and perfect high priest because He knows humanity. He knows suffering. And He, li- he suffered for us uh, in His life. He suffered with us and He suffered for us on the cross to represent us before God. To shed His own blood to offer b- before God as propitiation is the word that's used there. What is pr- <laughs> Easy for me to say. What is propitiation? It's a, an offering of appeasement. That's what it is. So He offered Himself in appeasement to Holy God. We, I think we get this. Guys, if you drove here this morning and you drove around a corner in your neighborhood in the snow and you were going a little too fast, you went off the road and you plowed over your neighbor's mailbox, it would be proper for your neighbor to be upset. Maybe they love you and they're patient, but you know, we got a mailbox. And it would be proper, right, for you to pay for a new mailbox and install it, right? That's propitiation. It's basically you've done something to harm your neighbor and they're rightly upset about it, and so you offer something. In this case, it's the new mailbox and installing it for them. Well, God, in His holiness and goodness, has a right offense against us and there needs to be an offering to appease Him, to make up, to, pay, to satisfy justice. And that offering is not the blood of animals, but Jesus Himself. He has offered Himself as one who has suffered with us. And in offering Himself, He, he gives Himself as propitiation. He bears the wrath, the holy wrath of God. He bears sin. And in all that, in the cross, starting from really the whole last week, but Gethsemane to the cross, He suffered far beyond anything we will ever, ever suffer. No human knows suffering like Jesus. You don't know suffering like Jesus. No matter how much you've suffered, and many of us have suffered very much, you don't know it like Jesus knows suffering. And the good news is, He wants you to trust Him in that. That He's made a way to redeem you through His own suffering. And He's made a way for you to find comfort and strength in Him amidst your suffering. It's interesting, just one last thing. Verse 18 says something that that is insightful. And I think we need to take note of it. Uh, This is point number four. Do you see it there? For because He Himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. Wait a second. I thought this was a message. I thought this was a passage on suffering. Now we're talking about temptation. Aren't they two separate things? Nope. I think the connection here Uh, is that when we suffer, probably the worst thing about it is that we're tempted, right? We're tempted to think all sorts of wrong things about God and about life. Suffering has a way of of tempting us. It tempts us to believe things. Maybe we think, you know, maybe God isn't quite as good as I've been told. Maybe His Word isn't really true. Maybe it's not able to help me. Maybe... It's that He is really good, but He's just not powerful. He's not in control. Maybe we start to feel and are tempted in areas like my church and all the people I know, none of them understand me and they're all kind of a bunch of phonies. You don't have to raise your hand, but have you ever been in suffering and loneliness and had that thought? I have. It's temptation that comes with the suffering, right? That's what makes it hard, these sorts of temptations. Maybe you thought, you know, my faith is just a, maybe it's just an elaborate fantasy. It's like they say, just a, something that came through evolution as a way to cope and be better as society. You know, it's just made up. It's not working. Maybe we're thinking in our suffering that, you know, it's going to get really bad and I'm going to get sucked into this, this void, oblivion of despair and darkness. And so you're tempted in that. Maybe your temptation in your suffering is to try to find help in some way like food or sex or alcohol. Looking to things to somehow help you in your suffering. There's temptation that comes with suffering like this. One of the strongest drugs that 
is way more common than we understand is the drug of bitterness and suffering. Boy, it can feel really good to be bitter and upset with all those other people who let you down, to be upset with God who let you down. At least as we may think of it at that moment. Bitterness is a, a nice drug that we can look to in our suffering. There are all sorts of temptations that come with suffering. They're connected. So Jesus' uh, temptation was related to suffering. He's, he fasts in the desert. And there's temptation. He's tempted in the garden to give up the mission in His suffering. So they're connected. And that, I think, is what makes suffering so challenging is the temptation that often comes with it. We're faced with these temptations. But in Jesus, we have victory over the temptations that come with suffering. Because Jesus knows our suffering. He's with us. We can look to Him. He understands us. He's for us. And He has gone through suffering to rescue us from temptation and bad consequences in suffering. He redeems our suffering through what He did in His suffering. Because in Him now, we are forgiven of all the sins that we might do in our suffering. All forgiven. Past, present, future. You're forgiven. You're a forgiven one. You don't need to stay focused on the temptation and the sin. You're free and forgiven in Jesus. There's power in that. But now He works through the suffering to work good through our lives. And so we can live in His life and redefine our suffering. Not as mere pain and loss, but as a way to draw closer to Jesus. And to be more like Jesus. And experience more of His glory. And to be more prepared for what heaven's about. And be more equipped to help others in suffering. That all gets changed in Jesus. Ultimately, all of this we started with is a pathway to glory if the band could come up as we close. A pathway to bringing sons and daughters to glory. It's God's plan to use suffering in this way, not only in His, his Son's life, but in ours as well. So as we transition before we go to communion, I just want you to think about what your greatest temptation in suffering is is how are you suffering first we all have suffered might not be suffering right now but as you've suffered how have you suffered and what has been your temptation and in light of hebrews chapter 2 and god's word and what we've talked about this morning how can that be changed what truth here impacts you in that suffering and that temptation so take a minute to to think about that just pray to the lord ask him to help you uh, we want to help you. We want to walk together in this too. So don't be alone in this. I think Toby will lead us in some responses with that. But for right now, just go before the Lord. Bring those questions. Think about that. And then we'll transition to communion.